Well, hello, everybody. My podcast. You know this because you listen to it a lot. And I'm unlikely to get new listeners in whatever episode this is. It's in the 20s somewhere. Who'd have thought that? 20-odd episodes of some Yorkshire bloke ranting on about kayaking trips primarily. Kayaking trips that we can't go on because of COVID. And drinking coffee. But I've not got coffee today. I've got tea. Because i got a new mug for Christmas. And it's like a little sort of face washing bowl. You know those antique face washing bowls you see on a antique road or flog it or whatever. It's like one of them. So it's actually a really big cup of tea I've got. So like I say, I'm going to be drinking tea and talking about stuff. And I'm not going to introduce it properly. I hope you're all doing okay in COVID times, and if you're listening in the UK, we know we're back under lockdown. And I think most of the world is. I might get myself a COVID injection vaccine thing next week. So I'll be getting jabbed with some 5G nanobots, and Bill Gates can program me to pot around, or Zuckerberg, or whatever it is. And uh, I'll be drawn to these 5G masks, I imagine. And I don't know, I'll probably go on some sort of really weird sort of protest march about it. And then again, I'll probably just take it. Because it's worthwhile having, isn't it? And it'll allow us to travel, I'm sure. And it'll allow society to get back to some sort of normality. So I'm quite looking forward to it. I booked it in at half past eight in the morning as well. So it's even before breakfast. Well, before my breakfast, because, you know, I have my breakfast quite late sometimes. Anyway, I am just rattling. Thought today I'd talk to you about a little bit of pre-trip planning. You know, Himalayan expeditions, kayaking trips, and the pre-trip stuff that sort of has become part of the fabric of my life for 20 years. And I've spoken before about a river called the Humla Canali. A liquid from the throne of Shiva, as Lingon and Munzi once said. It's an audacious trip that sits high in the Himalayas as the water falls off the Tibetan plateau. But the adventure doesn't start there. It doesn't start when you land in Simicot and walk to the river. The adventure starts days before. Perhaps months before. Perhaps years before if you're planning that trip and building your skills and knowledge up to run that river. Perhaps you've watched videos on it. Perhaps you've heard stories. I was going to say around campfires, but we don't have many of those. There's stories on podcasts. I first heard of the Humla Canali when I was first in Nepal and Chris Dickinson and team were going up to do the trip. They had Diablos. I remember Eskimo Diablos. But they may have had some uh, perception overflows as well. But boats change and things move on. Now for me, when I did the Humla with 
Dave, who's been mentioned in these podcasts, and George, who has also been mentioned in these podcasts. Our adventure started weeks before our trip. When I got a message off Dave, who was working over in India guiding, I think he was probably on the Kalisada, who said, let's go do a trip. Let's have an expedition. And I replied, okay, let's go. Simple, plain, no real planning to it. And as the sort of days moved on from that initial meeting, and I was instructed to find Dave's boat from 14 years prior in a shed covered in dust and rat poo, and organised logistics, that's when the trip sort of becomes a bit real. Now, for a trip like the Humler, the logistics of getting your boats and all your gear to the putting can take some time and it's good it's nice to have a good fixer and people that you know on the ground. Ranjan and Shada and Kathmandu are my fixers, I've known them for a long time. Long, long time. Dower in Nepoganj. Known him for a long time as well. He's helped me with a lot of flights. So the boats were picked out of storage and sent overland into Nepoganj. We paid some young Nepalese lad to sit on a night bus with our three boats and take them to the airport and send them up into Simicot in cargo. And then Dave arrived from India asking where his boat was and could he put, put hip pads and things in. And he was informed that the boat had already gone to Simicot. So all we had to do was do the shopping. Excuse me, and drink some tea. Which is obviously what I'm doing now. Now, shopping for expeditions in Kathmandu. I've seen a thousand people come to Kathmandu and plan expeditions, whether it be kayaking or trekking or climbing. And they think that they need to buy the latest freeze-dried meals. That they need to have those dehydrated packets from Backpacker Pantry or, you know, Sea to Summit, I think is another brand. And they need the latest, you know, stove from MSR, perhaps a whisper light. And I've fallen foul to this in the past. But over time I realised that nothing beats a proper meal. Freeze-dried meals are all very well and good and they're quick and simple. But nothing beats the sort of camaraderie around cooking over a fire. Obviously, you've got added weight in your boat, but when you're packing for 10 days, adding a little bit of weight here and there, it does add up, but I don't mind it. Now, Kathmandu, Tamil tourist district, for those that don't know, it's sort of a hodgepodge of everything that's good and bad about backpacking culture, about tourism culture. You've got shops with branded product in, sitting next to shops with fake product in. You've got historic temples and icons of religion, icons, iconic statues of religion, sat next to nightclubs and bars. You've got one restaurant playing country music next to a restaurant playing rock and roll. Trying to out-battle each other on the volume stakes. 
You've got taxi horns beeping and rickshaws cutting you up as you walk. You've got the beggar on the street that lost his home to the earthquake years before. You've got the young kids skipping school and looking at Taurus with those puppy dog eyes asking for biscuits and coke and cigarettes and all sorts. And in these streets and in these back alleys, if you know them well, you know where to get what you need for your trip. You know where to get the photocopies of your passport, perhaps you need those. You know that it's advisable to carry contact details of your peers on trips like that. So that you can inform people, for travel insurance reasons perhaps. And as you walk down these streets, through those dusty back alleys, Perhaps you're drinking beer and having tea and talking to locals to avoid the, the task at hand. And the task at hand is making sure you have enough food for your trip. And buying those last minute woolly hats or gloves or socks that you might need for your trip but have forgotten or left somewhere. Excuse me. Just outside Tamil, on the way to the bus... The bus if you were going to Pokhara. But we're not talking the local bus. That's no, sorry, the tourist bus. We are talking the local bus. So you walk out of the back of Tamil. As if you're going to go to Swayambanath and you turn left and cross a filthy river. But And just over there, without too many details or a Google map pin, is a shop. And it's more like a wholesale shop than a supermarket where you can weigh out the rice and dal you need, where you can weigh out your sugar and your tea. And we bustled into there. And in years past, I've done a kitty system when buying food for trips. We've all put money in the pot and we've spent it out of the pot. But on this occasion... One of us just reached into our wallet. And that's enough to pay. One person paid that. Next person would pay the next bit of food we bought. Or buy the next meal. And during the course of the trip it balances out. You know. Money after all is there to be spent or saved. And on a trip like that the margins are very small. So rather than sitting down and working out who spent what and when and where. It's just a case of buying what needs to be bought when it needs to be bought. Anyway, I rattle on. But the excitement's now building as you're walking around with maybe 10 kg of food in your, in your bags. Maybe more. Those little luxury items that make every day on that trip worthwhile. We had melted chocolate and, uh, and cookies for a sort of supper. We had soup for starters. And we had rice with dal and vegetables for our main meal. With spices, obviously. That's made for a beautiful meal on every meal. Changing the spices, changing the vegetables made a lovely curry every night. Now on this trip we couldn't load our boats with food because they'd already set off. But on a lot of trips I have pre-planned how to load the boat, maybe in the hotel courtyard before I've set off. But we couldn't do it on this occasion. And shopping, you know, after 20 years of experience, shopping doesn't take very long. So you may 
give yourself an hour to do it. But it only takes you 10 minutes, perhaps, if you know which stop shop to go to and you've got the correct money out of the ATM. And then you sit in the cafe. Maybe one of you wanders off to buy extra phone credit on a little scratch card. And you sit and you sort of hang out. And my favourite cafe always has been a cafe called Le Bistro. It's in the middle of Tamil and it overlooks an intersection. And you can watch people walking back and forth. You can spot new arrivals by the way that they're wide-eyed. You can spot old hands and guides by the way that they just jostle past, know exactly where they're going. They're not looking at maps. They're not looking up for landmarks. And you sit there and maybe you drink another pot of tea, just like I'm doing now. And you wait it out. You have to wait for the bus to come. Or you have to wait for your taxi to arrive. Or perhaps you have to wait for the plane to fly you to Nepalganj. On this occasion, we ordered a night bus, just a local night bus. So as the hours tick on and we drink more and more tea, there comes a time, you know, when you get to a certain age where you've got to stop drinking tea because you're on a night bus and you know that you don't want a full bladder as you're bouncing down the highway in Nepal. But I can have a full bladder while I'm talking to you. Excuse me. <coughs> and like I say, as the hours tick away and you do a mental check of everything that you need, helmet, dry suit, PFD, skirt, shoes, thermals, food, emergency kit, sleeping bag, dry bags, mental checklist. And for us... We got our taxi to take us to the bus park and got on the night bus. I always like to get to the night buses early because if my ticket says I'm on the back row, I know I'm not going to be sleeping and I'd rather have a seat near the front. So if I get there early, I can sort of bribe the bus boy or the bus driver and sort of bump up my seat a little to the front. Gone are the days where you could ride on the roof. Riding on the roof in Nepal. I've slept quite a long time up there. Tie yourself on. Lay down. Happy days. But uh, those days are gone now. So you sit on the night bus. And as the bus warms itself up. Or you can hear it. The bus pack fills with diesel fumes and screeching brakes. Metal on metal. And it sets off into the night. The driver quite wide-eyed. As he goes round the hairpin bends coming out of the Kathmandu Valley. With music distorted and screeching out of the speakers of the bus. But if you're really lucky, it's probably a movie. And they're not just screeching of music, but screeching of the actors on a screen of a TV that sits precarious above the front row of passengers. And the bus rattles on and sleep is hard to come by, but it is possible. And in the early hours, we arrived in Nepalganj. Feeling jet-lagged. Feeling not quite awake. And as you get off the bus, in the middle of the Ganj, in the dust and the heat of the early morning, 
taking your bags from the bus. You sit, and it's a time for another cup of tea. And there's always a little chai waller at the bus park, always. Maybe making some samosa or some chat or some rice and some dal. And that's the time to collect your thoughts again and drink a tea. You're never going to get yourself a half-wrap cappuccino, latte, whatever it is in the Nepogans. But you are going to get a sickly sweet condensed milk tea. And that's when you can collect your thoughts and realise what you're walking into, or indeed flying into in the case of the Hummer. Now for us, we booked a night in a really nice hotel with a cocktail bar and a swimming pool. And for those of you that are listening to this that have been to Nepogang, I can hear you snigger and laugh. Oh, really? I didn't realise there was a hotel with a swimming pool and cocktail bar in Nepogang. But there is. And it's called the Hotel Snur. And it has a statue of the Venus de Milo. You know, outside it's not the Venus de Milo, obviously it's a really bad replica. And we pile into the hotel room, to a three-bedded room, with a running water, TV, internet, food on tap. And that works out, and it's time to reflect on what you've packed again. So I always go for another quick repack, just to count what I've got. And then you just wait the day out, because you've got to maybe fly the following day up to the up to the Humla, and that's what we did. So we waited the day out in Nepogans, watching TV, sitting on sun lounges, eating palak paneer, talking about trips long gone, talking about how we all met. And that boosts camaraderie, and you are a team again. You may not have paddled together, <coughs> excuse me, you may not have paddled together for a long time on remote trips. You may paddle a lot together. And it matters who the team is. It matters that you all bond. Because on that trip, you're what matters. You're looking after your mate, and your mate is looking after you. And I've just talked about the Humler and setting off to the Humler. I've not talked about the river at all. Because the river is not really important in this story. What's important is the bond that you have together. No matter what trip I go on, it's really important that you bond with your other team members. Sometimes you need a hierarchy on a team, you need somebody that is making the decisions. Other times it can be a bit more laissez and fair and you can all share that responsibility. Something that you need to really understand is how a weaker member of the team will feel, will they be nervous? If it's a trip you've done many, many times and somebody new is joining into that peer group or on that river, how are they feeling, what questions are they asking? And they're important things. How does your behaviour, if you're being less and fair, affect those in your group? How does your behaviour, if you're being quite authoritarian, affect those in the group? I'm sure we all know stories of people that no longer paddle with other peers because of the way that they interact prior to the river or after the river, or even during the river. I've seen it quite a few times on rivers where peers shout at each other when there's no need to shout, there's obviously reasons to shout if people are paddling towards strainers. But when they're just generally floating down the river, there's no need to shout and bawl, blow whistles. Things to consider. I have just rattled on a little bit about this. 
and I've just finished my cup of tea, which tells me that it's nearly time for this podcast to be over. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And, you know, if you've got comments, stick them in the comments. If you want me to talk about stuff, message me and I'll talk about stuff. Have a lovely, lovely time. People, ooh, parcel delivery man outside. Anyhow, I'm going to go because I'm going to get my parcel. Right, have a great day.